Hey guys, welcome to another episode of True Crimes and Weird Times. I'm Ashley. And I'm Kim. And today, I'm going to be telling you about Bobby Joe Long, who, for eight months in 1984, terrorized the Tampa, Florida area. And I will be telling you about a mysterious beast that terrorized a small region in France from 1764 to 1767. It was known only as the Beast of Gévaudan. Robert Joseph Long was born on October 14, 1953, in Canova, West Virginia. When Robert was young, his parents, Louetta and Joe, divorced, and he spent his childhood living in Florida with his mother. Now, during his childhood, he had suffered a few head injuries, and I couldn't get enough sources telling me whether or not all of these were true, but I would like to think that this attributed to his behavior later. I mean, head injuries do some crazy (sighs) things to you, man. Yeah. Uh, Some sources said that he fell from a swing and he suffered a head injury and the stick actually skewered his eyelid. Another time he was thrown from a bicycle and he knocked his teeth out on a car and he suffered a severe concussion. Wow. He was once hit by a car and he was knocked unconscious. mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Another source said that he was hit by a car when he like darted out in front of the road and he knocked out his teeth again, and it left him with a deformed jaw. Who's watching this <laughs> child? Well, this is also part of the problem, because Bobby Joe Long blames his mother for a lot of things. And according to him, she was more interested in men than him. Oh, okay. So, he also fell from a pony and suffered a concussion that lasted for weeks. So, I mean, there's... Well, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> there's a lot going on there. Bobby had also been born with an extra X chromosome. It's also known as a type of Klonfelter syndrome. But what it does is it causes the body to produce more estrogen and he develops more feminine parts, such as large breasts when he turned 13. Aww. You know, right around the time kids start being really mean. Yeah. So he was often teased for his breasts and his deformed jaw as well. Because of this, he even went through a breast reduction surgery later. But, like, he was just teased and kind of an outcast. It gets to you. Yeah, I mean, it does. And especially at 13. Yeah, years of that at that very impressionable age. Yeah. He also slept in his mother's bed until he was a teenager. That, uh... Little weird. Well, it's a little strange, but, like, that's neither here nor there, I guess. It's just how he felt towards his mother. I'm getting some psycho vibes here. Uh, a little bit, maybe. The movie. I'm not calling him a psycho. No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> he also began developing a hatred for his mother, though, because she worked at a bar and she wore very revealing clothing. She would also bring men home quite a bit, and he didn't like that. And he always hated the temporary boyfriends his mother had throughout his childhood. And he blames her for a lot of issues he had with women. I mean,. Uh, yeah, it's easy to blame someone else. Yeah. I don't it, know. I mean, I'm not saying it didn't contribute. I'm just saying, like, you got to work through your own problems sometimes. Yeah. But I also feel like maybe he just wasn't getting the attention he wanted. That's true, too. From his mother. Now, around the age of 13, he made a friend named Cynthia Bartlett, who he confided a lot of this stuff with. Like, they were really, really close. And they ended up becoming high school sweethearts, and they eventually married in 1974. And they actually had two children together. And Cynthia says that Robert was always a very sweet and kind man. And they dated for years, and they always had fun together. But it was only a few months into their marriage that Robert was hit by a car while riding his motorcycle. And this incident, he had landed on his head. Of course he did. Of course he did. He has not had a lot of luck. No. And Cynthia says that after this accident, Robert had turned into a completely different person almost instantly. Like after he got out of the hospital. I've heard of that. Like head injuries do crazy things to people. Well, and depending on how many of these head injuries he actually had, it, it just seems like the one that broke the camel's back, I guess. Yeah. She said that he started to become really physical. And just, like, little things would set him off. Like, he would come home and dinner wasn't made and he would go, like, bonkers over it. 
And she said that, like, if he didn't like what I cooked, he'd have a fit. We'd have an argument. It got to the point, like I said, he started beating her. So it took Cynthia being hospitalized in 1980 for her to finally decide to have a divorce. She said that she was afraid that she couldn't survive another beating from him. How long were they together before the motorcycle accident? Just a few months. Oh. Like, they had been dating all through teenage years, but they got married in 1980. He had that accident just a few months later, and then... Okay, I was kind of wondering if maybe it was one of those situations where you can kind of hide who you are until you're married, and then your real self comes out. Well, and I thought about that, but she had... They were, like, really, really tight. Okay. During So it was definitely the head injury. Yeah. Now, this divorce... Must have just finally sparked something in Robert, because according to him, this is when he started to begin to rape women. Jeez, man. Uh, In 1981, Robert had begun following and answering classified ads that he found in newspapers and penny savers for those who were like selling appliances or furniture or whatever. He said he would meet them, usually at their home. And if he found that the woman there was alone, he would ask to go to the bathroom where he would take out his rape kit. I actually tried to look up what was in this rape kit. I couldn't find anything. So I'm just assuming maybe, I don't know, rope or something. Rope, knife. Maybe. Condoms, if he used them? Uh, maybe, yeah. And then he proceeded to rape the woman. Now, according to Robert, Bobby, he probably did this to at least 50 women. Oh, my God. Yeah, like, like in Tampa, he was known as the classified ad rapist. Like the Craigslist killer. Yeah, like this was a thing. The original Craigslist killer. And he was eventually charged and convicted of rape in 1981, but somehow he requested a new trial and all of these charges were dropped. Oh. Yeah. So like he just got away with a scot-free, like all of this. That's our justice system Mm. sometimes. Now, Robert then moved to the Tampa area in 1983. And in just a year later, while he was still on probation, he upgraded from just rapist to now a killer. Oh, man. And Bobby Joe Long said that he had a very specific way of hunting his victims. He would drive around in his 1978 Dodge Magnum looking for victims in areas known for prostitution or drug areas. People that would not... High-risk lifestyle individuals, Yeah, basically. They, they yeah. unfortunately, would not be missing. Mm-hmm. He claimed that his victims would approach him first, which was not always true because he would ask to take them home, too. But he said that the victims would approach him first, and then he would persuade them to come back to his apartment, where he would bond them with rope, he would rape them, and then eventually kill them. In 1984, two boys stumbled upon the body of a woman lying face down, her hands bound behind her back and rope around her neck. This would be Bobby's first victim, a 20-year-old exotic dancer named Artis Ann Wick, and he killed her on March 27, 1984. She had been brutally raped and strangled to death. While investigators had tire marks and found a red nylon fiber at the scene of the crime, unfortunately, this was the 80s, and DNA just wasn't what it is now. So they didn't have any leads. Yeah. His next victim was Nguyen T. Long, who also went by Lana, and she was just 19 years old. She had moved to the Tampa area in February of that year and had been an exotic dancer at the Starlight Lounge and the Sly Fox Lounge. She had recently quit her job as a dancer, though, to study art and cinema at the University of South Florida. And while walking home one night, she met Bobby, who had offered her a ride home. And she accepted and got into the car. For the love of God, do not get in cars with people, please. Just don't get in some stranger's car, I say, as we all Uber in stranger's cars all the time. And this was the 80s. You didn't really have to think about that either. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get it. This was not her fault, but it's just like, just don't. Please don't. Just for you in the future, guys. Yes. Don't don't get in stranger's cars. Don't get in stranger's cars. He then drove her to a wooded area. He made her remove all of her clothes. And then he bound her and forced her to lie face down on the back of the seat of the car where he proceeded to rape her. He then pulled her from the car. He beat her until she couldn't fight back. And then he strangled her to death with a piece of rope. Oh, my God. That's so much unnecessary violence. Yep. Like, why beat her if you're going to kill her anyway? Like, I just... mm. Now, when her body was found, please say that she was still nude and her legs had been spread apart very wide. I don't know if that was intentional or if he just, like... Threw her out. Threw her out. But, like, that's not a way to be found. 
Now, his next victim was Michelle Sims. She was killed on May 27, 1984. Now, she had been a prostitute who accepted a job from Bobby Joe Long as she was walking down Kennedy Boulevard in Tampa. He drove to a secluded Lover's Lane area, and just like with Nguyen Long, he forced Michelle to undress and bound her arms and raped her in his car. He then tried to strangle Michelle outside of the vehicle, but when she started to fight back, he finally grabbed a knife and slit her throat several times. Oh, my God. Her corpse was found nude, and the rope was still around her neck, and her bloody clothes were hanging from a tree. What? I don't know if that was intentional, because... There's another time when he just throws clothes out, so maybe it just... Just landed there. Yeah. Now, police once again found tire tracks at the scene, as well as the red fiber. They also found human hair, a bear footprint, not a bear animal, (laughs) (laughs) and semen. But again, all of this great evidence was found, but the technology wasn't there to... To test it. To test it. Because... I mean, Bobby had had a a few run-ins with the law. And honestly, if they had had this DNA, they might have found him. Yeah, this day and age. Yeah, like like this day and age. With our stuff now, yeah, they probably could have. But they are able to find that there is a pattern forming here with the tire marks, the fiber, and they're chalking this up to a serial killer. And just so you know, the classified ad rapes are like still going on at the same time as all of these murders. I don't know how they didn't catch him from one thing to the other. That's insane. So he's he's still raping people that he's finding on in the newspaper. Right. And he's also killing people. And now he's also killing people. So Lyndon Nuttall was one of the classified ad victims during these murders. He answered an ad about her selling some furniture. Now, she was actually married and had two kids. Her husband was at home. But her two kids were. And he still proceeded to rape her while they were at home. Oh, my God. Yeah. This guy is scum. To the highest degree. Now, the next murder Bobby committed was 22-year-old Elizabeth Loudenbach. And she was killed on June 8th, 1984. She worked as a solder at a manufacturing plant in Odessa, Florida, and she lived with her parents at a mobile home community only just like a few blocks away from the Nebraska Avenue area where he would normally pick up other women. But she had been walking home, I'm sure probably walking through that area, mm-hmm. and Bobby offered her a rod. She took it, obviously, and she had ended up being bound and raped at gunpoint. Bobby then drove to a secluded orange grove, once again brutally raping Elizabeth. Now, this time, he untied her and told her to get dressed and return to the car. But Bobby later tells police that he finally decided just to strangle her to death because of her, quote, incessant crying. Mm, I don't have words for that Mm. one. Yeah. Now, he ends up throwing her body into some nearby shrubs. But... As I guess he was heading back to the car, he found her ATM card nearby, and then her PIN number was in her wallet. So he decided to take it and go around several banks withdrawing cash and, you know, just hang out with the money, I guess. And nobody was able to pick up on this? Like, is that not something the police could really track then either? It was the 80s. Yeah. ATM cards weren't huge. Yeah, I guess so. so. Now, Elizabeth's body was found a couple of weeks later. It was badly decomposed. She only weighed 25 pounds when they found her, but she was fully clothed and the rope was still tied around her neck. Wow. So he just strangles them and just... Just left l- her there. Just leaves. Like nothing. His next victim was Vicki Marie Elliott. She was 21 years old and she waited overnight tables at a Ramada Inn coffee shop. On September 7th, 1984, Vicki had asked a neighbor for a rod to work, but by the time they arrived to pick her up, she was nowhere to be found. So did Bobby offer her a ride or did he make her get in the car? I don't know. Yeah, if she already had plans to ride with someone else, I can't see her taking a ride from a stranger. That's what I would assume. But I could also say like, no, I'm waiting on somebody. Well, they're not here yet. I can just take you. I'm going right now. I don't know. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. Now, I couldn't find any details about what happened to Vicky. And that's probably on purpose it was probably a choice made by the family because I did find an article about Vicky and the only thing that was ever said was by her brother, Frank Elliott. And he just said, you don't want to know the brutality. So it was probably a decision made by the family. Yeah, I could see that. I I can understand that. Yeah. She was reported missing by her employer when she failed to show up for a shift. And the police found her dead two months later in a patch of scrub northeast of Tampa. 
They did say when they searched her home, they had found a plane ticket where she was set to fly back to Michigan to see her family. Oh. I know. His next victim was Chanel Devon Williams, who was just 18 years old. She was working as a prostitute, and she had just moved to Tampa from Winter Haven. Per Bobby's M.O., he picked Chanel up, he beat her, forced her to undress, bound her hands behind her back, and raped her in the backseat of his car. He proceeded to beat her again. He then drives near an entrance of a cattle ranch where he raped Chanel again. He then pulled her from the car and attempted to strangle her, but uh, Chanel was a fodder. Good. Yeah. And because of this, Bobby had a gun and he ended up shooting her once in the neck and once in the back of the head. He pushes her body under a wire fence and then drives away. And this is the one as he's driving away. He tossed her clothes out. Her underwear landed on a fence and her bra on the entrance gate of the ranch. Wow. Now, they're not entirely sure when she would like what day she was killed, but she was last seen alive working the Nebraska Avenue Strip on September 30th, 1984. And her body was found October 7th. So sometime in that time yeah, period. Yeah, that time frame. Just a week. Now, only a week after Chanel Williams was found, the body of 28-year-old Karen Beth Dinsfriend was found. She was said to have been working the Nebraska Avenue Strip as well as a prostitute, and she's picked up by Bobby. He undresses, bonds, and rapes Karen and drives to an orange grove where he strangles and rapes her again. Is this the same one he keeps going back to? I think there's several orange groves. Well, yeah, it's Florida. Yeah, it's so. Florida. As he's, you know, as he's strangling her and raping her, he's startled by dog barking. So he just like chills out for a minute and then proceeds to wrap her up in a beach towel and throw her in the trunk. Goes to another orange grove. Ah. Yeah. And he dumps her body under a tree and drives away. On Halloween of 1984, the mummified body of 22-year-old Kimberly Hops was found. Now, there isn't much known about Kimberly, but she was last seen walking with a group of prostitutes along Nebraska Avenue around mid-October. So within, again, just a couple of weeks. But when she was found, she was found preserved in a patch of mud on an isolated portion of US 301 north of Tampa. And the same MO, so they're linking it with Bobby. Now, on November 3rd, Bobby Joe Long abducts and rapes 17-year-old Lisa McVeigh. Now, Lisa McVeigh is Bobby Joe Long's only survivor through all of this. Wow. Now, like, he's had other survivors, per se, because he rapes. I say survivor because she was meant to die that night, just like all these other women. But she was able to talk Bobby out of killing her, and he even apologized to her when he drops her off. What? Yeah. Like, this chick is smart. Wow. This is a super amazing story. So I'm not going to go into all the details on this episode, but I have made her story our new Patreon episode for this month. So if you're interested, come check it out. Yeah. If you want to hear all the details about how she fought back and got away. Yes. This and woman talked is, herself out of it. Woman is badass. But unfortunately, Lisa wasn't his last victim. On November 6, 1984, the body of 18-year-old Virginia Johnson was found dismembered in a field. Officers found a skull and an upper torso, which was still wearing a tank top. They also found a shoelace, fabric twisted around the neck, and even a heart-shaped pendant that was still around her neck. Now, the dismemberment was said to have been from the elements in animals around the area. This wasn't... Yeah, that doesn't really fit with what he right. does. And she was last seen on Nebraska Avenue, possibly in late October. Now, Bobby's last victim would be 21-year-old Kimberly Marie Swan. She was an exotic dancer at the Sly Fox, but had recently enrolled at a vocational school to become a medical technician. She also had a one-year-old son, and they were living with her mother at the time. So she was, she was trying to pick her life up. Yeah. She was last seen at a convenience store on November 11th. The next day, a man working on a billboard on Orient Road found Kimberly's body under an overpass and she had been strangled to death. And Lord knows what else he had done to her. Right. Now, it was Lisa McVeigh who ultimately led police to Bobby Joe Long. Yeah. <laughs> police found the same red fibers on Lisa as some of Bobby's other victims. They then stopped a vehicle matching Lisa's description of the Dodge Magnum, and she identified the driver as Bobby. Uh, police then finally found the red carpet that had produced the fibers in Bobby's apartment. So, like, this is... Thank God. Yeah, they had enough. On November 16th, Bobby was finally arrested and questioned about the abduction, kidnapping, and sexual battery of Lisa McVeigh. 
And when police received a confession for Lisa, they began to question him about other murders in the area, these other women. And Long answered with a quote, I'd rather not answer that. Okay. Dumb. <laughs> I don't care what you want to answer. Yeah. Now, the police began to present him with photos of the victims, and Bobby eventually confesses to the, all these murders. Like, it doesn't take long for him to break down. Thank goodness. Yeah. In September 24th of 1985, Bobby Joe Long pled guilty to eight of the homicides and the abduction and rape of Lisa McVeigh. He received 26 life sentences with no possibility of parole and seven life sentences with the possibility of parole after 25 years. And in July of 1986, he would receive the death penalty for the murder of Michelle Sims. Now, (laughs) this takes about 30 years But on April 23rd, 2019, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed Bobby's death warrant. And just a month later, on May 23rd, again, after 30 years since all of these convictions, Bobby Joe Long was executed by lethal injection. Good. Mm -hmm. Victims' families watched the execution. Some of them, I think, maybe Vicky's parents had already died. Mm -hmm. And so some of them weren't there to be able to see this, but like... Other family members of these victims were there. They got to see it. Lisa McVeigh sat in the very front and center seat. Good. Yeah. However, I did read in some areas that, like, he wouldn't even open his eyes to look at the people. Of course he wouldn't. Well, yeah. Like, he he was a complete coward the whole time. Yeah. He didn't make a last statement. Nothing. It was just whatever. (sighs) But he's gone. So. I wonder... How much of this was purely from the head injury versus how he would have been either way? Because he had all these mommy issues. He did. And actually, with Lisa McVeigh, he confesses to her that when she asks him, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this to me? He said because he was he was angry at women. This was him getting back at women because of his mother, because of Cynthia divorcing him. Wow. So, Yeah. At least he's uh, at least he's done now. Yeah, but how much closure is that? I mean, your family's it's still not, gone. It's, it's not a it's it's not a comfort. I would feel like I'm sure it is for Lisa McVeigh. Like I'm telling you, this woman is badass. I love her. So, but we're gonna talk about that on Patreon. Yes, yes, Make yes, sure yes. you check my, it out. Got to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's the story of Bobby Joe Long, big fat idiot. Yep, the <laughs> asshole. <laughs> now when i get to do weird times (laughs) i like to pick stories that are kind of like based in reality yeah you know things that really happened but you can't really explain them but (laughs) one of my favorite paranormal or weird Mm -hmm. things is strange creatures i love it there Mm. used to be a show that came on called monster quest oh yeah and i watched it every week i loved it yeah 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 so any kind of big mysterious monster is like right up my alley yeah so that's why i picked this story and now it does take place in france i will be saying a lot of (laughs) french names if i say them incorrectly i'm gonna go ahead and apologize for that now just bear with me and know that i'm trying my best jevoudan was a rural region in southern france now in present time this area is now part of luzerre and it's it was mostly farmers and herders, shepherds, stuff okay. like that that lived in this area. And it was like a quiet region. There were now when I explain that it's a region, I don't mean that it's one small village. It's a region like multiple villages. Think like oh, okay. a state. OK. OK. So it's big, but it's not that big. Yeah. So most of the people here, like I said, were shepherds and they were herders and they were farmers Mm -hmm. and it was it was pretty quiet and since they had so many shepherds they were familiar with wolves and other predators being around to try and pick off their livestock yeah but nobody was prepared for a brand new type of predator that they had never seen before now this predator 
didn't go after the livestock. It was going after people. The first attack was on a young woman named Marie-Jean Vallée, who was tending cattle in the eastern part of Gévaudan. The beast charged at her, but luckily the herd protected her. So the bulls started charging at the beast and they actually scared it away from her. That's amazing. I know. Aren't animals great? Well, not all of them. Yeah, I guess not. Marie described the creature as like a wolf, yet not a wolf. The second victim was not as lucky as Marie. And on June 30th, 1764, 14-year-old Jean Boulet was out tending to a flock of sheep when she was attacked and killed by some kind of animal. When they find her body, they're horrified to see that whatever killed her maimed and tore at her so much that the cause of death was simply killed by a beast. Now, this kind of thing is is horrifying and absolutely unheard of for us. But back then, it was something that that just kind of happens sometimes. I can see that. Wild animals were a real threat, and sometimes people were attacked and killed by animals. Right. While we're automatically alarmed over one attack, (laughs) they weren't weren't quite there yet. Yeah, it happens. So not long after, on August 6th, another girl in a nearby town is found dead and partially eaten. Oh. Just like Jean Boulet. Oh, gross. Then a couple of days later, another girl's body is found. Also killed by a beast. Okay, now it's a little too much. Then at the end of the month, a 16-year-old boy is also found. Holy cow. In September, there are four more deadly attacks. Two of which were a man and woman who disappeared only to have the remains and tatters of clothing found out in open country in the woods nearby just scattered around. Oh, gross. So it had to have been something like, God, horrible. Big. A big, scary animal. Yeah. Now, this is when the villagers in Gévaudan realize that they have a really serious problem on their hands. <laughs> yeah. They could no longer just write it off as like, oh, it's just wolf attacks. Yeah. Because this is way more than it should ever be. Well, even with a normal wolf attack, like I would assume like there would be some fight back. Yeah, but, I mean, wolves are wolves are big, especially for kids, but I don't know. I just... Like the man and woman who had disappeared. Like, I don't... That's two on that's one. That's two on one, yeah. yeah. So it had to have been big. So the officials, the town officials start warning people, like, stay close to home. Don't go out any further than you have to. Mm-hmm. Like, stay inside whenever you can. Yeah. But it doesn't really seem to slow down the attacks because they start happening closer and closer to people's homes. Like this animal is not afraid of towns. Then on October 8th, a young man from Puget returned home absolutely terrified and covered in blood. He said that he had encountered the beast in an orchard and it had slashed open his chest and scalp. Oh, my God. But he was able to get away and make Mm -hmm. it home. The beast was spotted after this attack and some hunters followed the animal into the woods and they flushed it out into the open and they shot at it and it fell once, but it quickly jumped back up and it ran off. Oh, my God. So the bullets didn't seem to really phase it all that much. Throughout the rest of 1764, the attacks continued, mostly on women and children, and the attacks are all equally as brutal as the first few. It's interesting that it's women and children. Like It is, yeah. I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to make anybody mad, but like the weaker of, you know. The flock. The, I mean, the, the weakest of the flock. I mean. Civilization. I mean, yeah. it, it's picking off the younger and the weep, weaker. Yeah. That's crazy. And now, like I said, people were partially eaten. They were torn apart. And the beast seems to go for the head and the throat first in most of the attacks as well. So it like, it's like it kind of knows. Oh, yeah. It knows exactly where to, to lunge at to wow. kill someone. And in one instance, 
It said that after watching her brother get killed by the creature, a young girl was so afraid that she hid in some rocks for three days. Mm. By the time they found her, she had basically gone crazy. Well, I would assume so. Now, sightings of the beast report it as being a wolf-like creature, but being the size of a calf or a leopard. Some reports even put it as big as a horse. But, you know, it's people are afraid things get blown out of proportion. So I would put it, you know, closer to the calf or leopard size rather than horse size. (laughs) It had an elongated head similar to a greyhound with pointed ears. It had a tail that was longer than a wolf's, but it had a tuft of hair at the very end of its tail. Huh. It was so like a poodle. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> like a poodle. <laughs> it was described as either gray or red brown in color. And in most descriptions of the animal, it had this central dark stripe down its back. Huh. So that was a pretty significant detail that everyone kind of kept consistent. It had this black stripe that ran yeah. down its back. It also had a white heart-shaped pattern on its belly. Huh. And, of course, it had, you know, huge fangs and huge claws. Yeah. So it, it would have to be the same beast every time? It was always... Mm, we'll get to that. Okay. 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 <laughs> then there was the smell. Ugh. This beast reportedly smelled so bad that survivors said that they could smell the creature before the attack actually happened. What if it was a skinwalker? Oh, I like that theory. It could have been a skinwalker. We'll get to that in theories. Okay. (laughs) Now, there were so many attacks, and it was so frequent, and it was covering such a large area because this is an entire region. This is not one village. And it's covering such a huge area that a lot of people speculated that there was more than one of this creature. I can see that. But, I mean, there's no way to really know for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, if it's already has these superhuman abilities already, what's stopping it from, you know, being able to, like, track that large of an area? Mm Mm-hmm. I mean... And now, not, not everyone who's attacked is killed. Right. But most people are. Now, eventually, a local official named Etienne Lafont organizes a hunt for the beast. Mm-hmm. He appoints Captain Jean-Baptiste Duhamel, who was a leader in the local infantry, to lead the hunt. They gather over 100 volunteers for this job, and they set out to kill the creature. Okay. They do manage to track it down. But when they surround it and open fire with their muskets... The bullets, again, seem to barely phase the beast, and it just runs away. Duhamel also reportedly blamed his lack of success on the incompetence of the rest of the party. Oh, convenient. Okay. Which they were mostly peasants. <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, they are farmers. and But you think shepherds, they, they kind of have to know how to I defend their herd. so. So while Captain Duhamel is working on his strategy, the attacks continue on as frequently as ever. Oh, man. On January 12th, 1765, the beast attacked a 10-year-old boy named Jacques and his group of seven friends ranging from ages 8 to 12. But Jacques was apparently the bravest 10-year-old that ever lived because he led a counterattack against this creature with him and his friends wielding sticks. Oh, wow. That's awesome. And they managed to successfully drive it away. Good job, Jacques. Now, by this time, news of this beast had spread all across the country and had even reached the king himself in Versailles. Oh, wow. It was one of history's first media sensations. (laughs) And when the king heard what the kids had done, they were rewarded by King Louis XV personally. And Jacques' education was paid for by the crown. Hey, that's awesome. Now, King Louis is ready to put a stop to this insanity. Mm -hmm. And he offers 6,000 leave, which is easily... 
like 30 years <laughs> salary yeah. to the average person in Gévaudan. So to the person who kills the beast, that's That'd you're set, set for life. Yeah. And at this point, Dumel had been hunting this beast for several months with no success. And people are kind <laughs> of like done with him. Like yeah. <laughs> he's done his thing. We've gave him a chance. Let's get somebody new in here. So King Louis is actually inspired by these children's bravery. Uh-huh. And he sends two professional wolf hunters out to hunt down the beast. Okay. They were Jean-Charles Deneval and his son, Jean-Francois. This meant that Captain Duhamel was forced to step down, and he was not very happy <laughs> about that. Yeah. So that resulted in some fighting between him and Jean-Charles. They had very different tactics they wanted to carry out, uh. such as Duhamel thought that they should, you know, go out with a hunting party and, like, run it down and shoot it. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. Whereas Jean Charles was more like, we need to be stealthy. We need to like sneak up on it. Yeah. There were, them. I mean, there were even attempts. And now I apologize. I can't remember who set up these attempts. I believe it was Jean Charles, but I could be wrong hmm. where they, they put out poison bait and oh. they even had men dress up as women as bait oh, yeah. to try and draw it out. <laughs> but I can't remember which of the two put all that effort into it. It I'm didn't s- work. I'm sorry. It just that's funny. Like I just picture dressing in drag to trick a wolf. <laughs> oh, I hope nobody comes to eat me. <laughs> <laughs> but Jean Charles and his son had hunted and killed hundreds of wolves in their career. In fact, Jean Charles brags that he's killed over 1,200 wolves. Oh, so they knew what they were doing. They did. And they were totally confident that they were going to put a stop to these killings. But it turns out the conditions in this region were totally different from what they were used to. From the landscape to the weather, everything just seemed to be kind of working against them. Maybe that's why this beast picked that area. Well, that's another point is that whatever this thing is, it clearly has to be able to withstand, you know, mountainous regions with yeah. freak snowstorms and, and and just like heat and cold and just, you know, crazy. That is. It's crazy. Because of all these things working against them, they're also unsuccessful <laughs> at yeah. catching the beast. So in July of 1765... The Dianvals were replaced by King Louis's own gun bearer and bodyguard named Francois Antoine and his son. And they were sent to kill the beast instead of these other two who clearly were unsuccessful. Uh-huh. Too many hands. Too many hands. <laughs> All the while, the attacks are still happening. And now when I say that the other guys had some time to kill the wolves... Jean-Charles and his son spent about five months hunting this creature, and they never catch it. So it's five months before they're replaced by Francois. How is there anyone left in this region at all? I know. There's just, it's insane how many people this thing is killing. On August 11th, 1765, 20-year-old Marie-Jean Vallée was crossing a river with her sister when she was attacked by the beast. She was armed with a bayonet attached to the end of a pole, and Marie-Jean impaled the beast's chest on her own, just like stabbed it in the chest. Now, it got away, but her bravery and her fighting back earned her the title Maid of Gévaudan, (laughs) and today a statue still stands in her honor in the village of Auvers in southern France. That's amazing. And you can see pictures. It's her, you know, with her bayonet on a stick, like, and the beast coming at her and she's stabbing it. And it is a pretty epic statue. So we can post a picture of it on our social media. Finally, in September of 1765, Francois manages to shoot and kill a very large wolf. And he has the remains sent back to the king to be examined. Now, they don't actually (laughs) find any evidence that this wolf had ever eaten a person when they examine it uh-huh. but 
the king goes ahead and declares victory oh, anyway. Of course. The beast has been killed. Everyone is safe. Go back to living your lives. I did it. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> That's about right. Which at first, everyone is like, great. You know, it's awesome. Everyone's overjoyed. They start to relax. They start leaving their houses a little more. Mm-hmm. And for a little while, it, it really seems like it worked because they get a two-month break with no attacks. Oh. But then, two months later, <laughs> the attacks oh. start up again. Now, the king's already declared victory, and he's not going to go back on that. So as far as he's concerned, this is another one. The matter has settled <laughs> and he doesn't really do anything else to help. In fact, he actually makes sure that the media coverage on the beast dies down as uh, well. Yep. So there's less information on the attacks that happen later on mm-hmm. because King Louis was like, oh, no. Psh, 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 yeah. There's no beast anymore. Yep. But over the next eight months the attacks continue and this beast covers like I said huge distances Mm -hmm. and hunts often and no one knows where it came from nobody knows what it is and it seems to be immune to bullets (laughs) and continually escapes death I mean it was stabbed in the chest yeah it was shot more than once (laughs) and it's still out there killing people Now, in November of 1766, the attacks suddenly kind of die down for a while Hmm. and everyone starts to feel a little better. Like maybe it moved on. Maybe it died of natural causes. But then in March of 1767, the attacks come back full force with numbers upwards of 10 attacks a month. Oh, my God. This is when the locals decide to just take matters into their own hands. Mm. Yeah. Because... At this point, this beast has killed around 100 people in the past three years. Oh, wow. Now, there's reports out there that it killed over 300 and it did, you know, so many. But realistically, from what I could find, the actual number is right around 100 people in three years. So a local nobleman organizes another hunt. Now, in this group... There was a hunter named Jean Chastel, and at one point, he kind of slips off on his own for a bit, Mm -hmm. and of course, while he's off on his own, he runs into the beast. It looks exactly as people described it. It's big. It's got the dark stripe down its back. Mm -hmm. It's got huge teeth, and it smells awful. It kind of watches John for a little bit until... It finally charges at him. Mm -hmm. Jean stays very calm. He stands up, raises his musket, and fires at it. The creature immediately falls over dead. Wow, yay! At last, (laughs) after three years. The remains of the creature were sent to King Louis to be examined, But by the time the body got there, it was so decomposed that no one could really tell what kind of animal it was. Yeah. But they did find human remains in its stomach. Oh. Luckily, they got it right this time. This was it. (laughs) They killed the beast. Because after this, the attacks finally stopped for good. Wow. So maybe it was just one. But what was it? (laughs) So let's talk theories now. There are tons of theories on what this creature was. But I have narrowed it down to just three of them because two of them I felt were the most likely answers that Mm -hmm. seemed like the most plausible, the most realistic. And one of them's just for Ashley. Yeah. The first and really the simplest theory is that it was just a wolf or a pack of wolves yeah but and the crazy descriptions were due to mass hysteria yeah because wolf attacks at the time were actually a very serious problem not just in france but all of europe so it's very possible that there was just a high enough wolf population that not one creature was attacking but multiple wolf attacks were happening across the region okay fine yeah (laughs) (laughs) So that's 
a very real possibility. Yeah. My only issue with that one is why did everyone have such similar descriptions of one different of kind of beast? Right. And it was larger and it was very distinctive. Yeah. It was not a typical wolf description. Yeah. Which leads me into my next theory, which is my personal favorite, the one I choose to believe because it makes the most mm-hmm. sense to me. Okay. There's another theory that it was an escaped exotic creature from a local menagerie or even escaped from a private owner. Okay. Because King Louis' grandfather had made it kind of popular to own exotic pets. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people who had money wanted to own exotic pets. Yeah. So if one of these creatures, and I'm not talking parrots, I'm talking (laughs) lions and leopards and like crazy animals. And I'm sure back then, the more dangerous, the more, I don't know, cool. The more upscale you were like... Yeah. So if it was one of these pets and it had escaped and started killing people, it's very unlikely that the owner would step up to take the blame. Yeah, fair enough. But that leads us into what exactly (laughs) would it have been? Now, people have theorized all sorts of creatures from boars to snow leopards to a lion. But the one that seems to fit the descriptions best, at least to me, uh-huh. is the African striped hyena. Okay. That, I could see that. I mean, I know at first you'd think like there's no hyenas in France, but there is pamphlets and stuff of people describing animals that had been brought over in the menageries yeah. in the 1700s. And one of them was specifically listed as a African striped hyena. Right. And Africa's not that far away. So we know people were bringing them over. Right. I can see that. I pulled up a picture. Uh, it's kind of got a hump back, so it looks a little bit bigger than a wolf. Its face is, uh, I mean, it's it's a little flatter, but I can see. Flattened snout was part of one of yeah. the descriptions. Not that I mentioned. I didn't put every description I found, but. Yeah, but. It's got the pointy ears. Yeah. And. I mean, if you I compare if you compare drawings and the descriptions of the beast of Gévaudan with the striped hyena, they just look so similar. Yeah. Because remember that dark stripe down the creature's back? Yeah. It's a pretty consistent detail in all the descriptions. And that would match up to the coloring of a striped hyena. I can they see have that. that dark stripe down their back. Also, the tail. Yeah. It was described as having a long tail with a tuft of hair on the end, right. which is what hyenas have. And they look like an animal that stinks. I would venture to guess that <laughs> hyenas do not smell good at all. They probably do not, especially if they're eating humans, for sure, like meat. And hyenas have incredibly powerful jaws that can crush bones. And the creature was known for tearing its victims to shreds. It yeah. would have the bite power to do that. That's really super plausible. Could it live in these conditions in France? I don't know. <sighs> Maybe. Clearly, something could. Something could. I Like I said, there's no way to prove what it was. Nobody knows what it was. But to me, that one makes the most sense. It even slinks around like a wolf. Like, I can see this. Mm-hmm. And we'll post pictures of the hyena yeah, and some wolf yeah. drawing or the, the beast drawings and stuff, Of too. course. And the final theory, the one that's also very prevalent, Mm -hmm. is that it was a werewolf. There it is. And (laughs) this could explain why the bullets didn't seem to do much damage. That was going to be my next question, because why wouldn't a hyena just die? (laughs) Right. But, I mean, if you think about it, muskets aren't very accurate. (laughs) And, you know, maybe they got a flank and that's just yeah. enough to wound it, you know. Yeah. But there were also reports of victims clothing being found folded neatly nearby uh, the bodies. Uh-huh. I doubt it. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a nice little piece of fluff to put in. But it would also explain the unusual size of yeah. the wolf and those supernatural qualities. Like people, there were reports that its eyes glowed red. Again. Right. Yeah. Mass hysteria rumors. Yeah. And 
it would take huge leaping bounds and, and the brutality of the killings and how it was able to evade people. Yeah. There's even a, a theory going around that is, from what I can tell, not true at all. <laughs> but it's said that Jean Chastel, the guy mm-hmm. who shot it, did not shoot it with a normal bullet. He shot it with a silver bullet that oh. was made from melted down coins that had a picture of the Virgin Mary on them. Okay. And that's how he killed it. Yeah. From what I could find in actual historical accounts, <laughs> that is not true. He yeah. did not do that. He just shot it with a regular bullet and it died. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is a nice thing to add, though. But it's a I cool mean, yeah. it's a cool werewolf theory. Yeah. I mean... I did not think it is all I'm saying. Um, <laughs> and there, I mean, like I said, there's so many theories, like an armored war dog was one of them or an, oh, wow. an ancient animal called a bear dog or, uh, or something yeah, like heard that. Something like that before, or maybe yeah. it was a dire wolf or maybe, uh, and like people have all, they even speculated that Jean Chastel, the man who shot it, uh, trained the animal to attack people himself. <laughs> and it was actually fathered by his mastiff uh, so yeah. he had trained it and that's why he, like there's so many too theories much, out much. there that you can get into but like i said for me personally the hyena one seems to fit the best it does that is a really good one um i'm sticking with skinwalker skinwalker is a great theory <laughs> i really like the skinwalker theory um also i know i said beauty and the beast but like <laughs> <laughs> okay now hang on so, Beauty and the Beast was written in 1740. This gives us 25 years of a story about a beast. That's in France. That's in France. Hmm, I'm just saying. Okay, okay. Maybe, I'm saying maybe the beast was inspired by the story, though. That's true. It could have fed into the, <laughs> you know. Okay. I mean. I don't hate it. I don't know, Skinwalker. Skinwalker. Yeah. Or hyena. Hyena, probably. <laughs> but that is the story of the Beast of Gévaudan. Nice. Thanks for listening. Like us on Facebook at True Crimes and Weird Times Podcast. Follow us on Instagram at True Crimes Weird Times. Email us your stories at truecrimesweirdtimes at gmail.com. Can't wait for the next episode? Check out our Patreon for bonus episodes and more. And if you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Bye!